Two Questions and Two Sons is the title of the sermon today. So we keep making our way through the gospel of Matthew, and we are now in the week of the Passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. This particular section probably takes place on Tuesday, so we're getting even closer and closer to the cross at this point, and uh, we find this conversation turned confrontation uh, taking place between Jesus and the religious leaders. And as always, uh, even though at first glimpse we may be thinking, well, this really has nothing applicable for me today, but actually there's much here for us, even, even as those who, who claim to be followers of the Lord. So let's once again pray as we do. Let's ask for the Lord to help us as his people to speak to us and to have his will in our hearts and lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for your word. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to gather together to, to pray to you, to seek your blessings and graces to give you thanks for your faithfulness to us throughout all of our lives and on into eternity, Father. You are forever faithful. You are faithful to your promises. You are faithful to your word. You are faithful to your people. And so we know, Father, that, that when we gather together like this as your body, your people, the bride of Christ... That, Lord, you, as we come to worship and honor you, you are also at work within us. Your word goes out. It does not return void. Your spirit is present and powerfully speaking. We thank you for that, Father, that your word is much louder than the preacher. Your spirit is much more compelling than the, the preacher and we give you glory for that. And, and sometimes, Lord, we, we read through the Scripture and, and we don't really see, we don't really find much uh, that we believe is there for us. And yet, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, your Word tells us. So, Father, as we study this passage together today, Lord, help us. Help me to be faithful to the intent and the meaning of the text itself. And, and then we depend on you, Holy Spirit, to make applications in our hearts and our lives, to open our minds, to conform us to Christ, to convict us, to encourage us, to equip us, all of the things that we need. Lord, you are well aware of the, uh, the unknowns that are before us this week, yet they are not unknown to you. And so we, we just ask you once again for your help, and we trust you're going to be faithful. Build your church for your glory. Draw us compellingly and savingly to the Lord Jesus Christ today. And we give you the glory for all of it. In his precious name, amen. So when we begin in chapter 21 at verse 
uh, 23 and really throughout the rest of even the next chapter, chapter 22, uh, we, we see this increasing hostility of the religious leaders toward Jesus. So the more they intend to bait and trap him with questions, the more he reveals, instead of being trapped in their question, the more he reveals the, their own spiritual death and the void in their own hearts. And of course, the more Jesus reveals their spiritual lack and need, the more he points out their deficiencies and the things that they need the more they grow incensed and outraged at him and with him. I was thinking as I was preparing the sermon this week that, you know, Scripture is filled with with various characters and peoples and groups. And and each one of these is, is setting a life trajectory either toward God through Christ or rejecting God's revelation and and ultimately rejecting Christ. And so with with each individual, with each character, with each person we meet in in Scripture, we, we do well to be very keen observers of all of these men and women and groups of men and women we find in the Bible. It's essentially a study of humanity and a study of Christianity right before us. Every one of us here today gathered in this sanctuary, we are either setting a course of life that, that leads us closer to God through Christ, or we are setting a course of life that, that leads us further away from God by essentially not embracing and following Christ. So when we come to Scripture, there are, there's a multitude of scriptural examples for us to follow and, and emulate, like the disciples, like the Apostle Paul. But there are also other examples, multitude of examples given to us to, to heed the warning of their lives and to not follow course these religious leaders would fall into that category they just simply refused to ever be wrong that's one of the dangers in their hearts and one of the dangers in our could be in our own hearts as well they just simply refused to ever be wrong in each confrontation with Jesus he would point out their spiritual blindness He would point out their need for repentance, their need for faith, their lack of true reconciliation with the Father. But they were so steeped in in their pride and in their their arrogance, they, they refused any rebuke, any correction, any notion that that they in some way needed to change, either in their thinking or in their worship or in their teaching or in their pattern of life. So ultimately, they, they reject the only means of their own forgiveness and salvation. And so they are chief examples to us 
of what not to do, how not to be. Even as believers, we will be, if we are people of the Word and saturating, immersing our lives in the Word, both at home and in the church, we're going to be confronted with biblical truth. We're going to be faced with the claims and, and teachings of Christ. And especially if we are apart from the Lord and we come in contact with the Scripture and are exposed to the Scripture. So we must seek to humble ourselves and and learn to lean into God, letting go of self, denying self, rather than, than stiffening our hearts and stiffening our necks and setting our wills against the Lord. We know that the Bible is absolutely clear that Christ is the source of life and salvation, the only source of life and salvation. And life and salvation then will only be found when we are with Him. Never will they be found when we are walking in opposition to Him. So the religious leaders here are an example for us of listening to the Lord, listening to Scripture, inclining our hearts through repentance and prayer and humility to the Lord's way, to the Lord's voice in our lives. And we see these, sadly, we see this group continue to walk in opposition to Christ as they, first of all, uh, present Jesus with a question for accusation, not for information. That's the first point of the sermon today, a question for accusation, not information. As I said, this is probably Tuesday. The, the priest and the elders, they approach Jesus. He's teaching in the temple, and they, they question him concerning his authority to do these things. What gives you the right to be here, to be in the temple to be saying these things, to be doing these things. On what grounds, what is, your, what is your status, what is your approval, what are your credentials, how are you here? After all, remember the temple in their minds, the temple, now remember this is the temple of the Lord, but in their minds, the temple, that's their territory. That's, that's the place that they take care of. That's where they are in charge. They set the rules. They set the guidelines. They are the religious leaders and experts. So on what grounds does Jesus assume that he can just step in, undo the things that they have done, rearrange the schedule, dismantle their monetary operation, take over the teaching... And in the middle of it all, remember, he, he begins to accept the praise of the children that he's the Messiah. On what authority, they say, are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, if you recall, when, by the time they're asking this question, it's already been answered, hasn't it? In a most dramatic way. In a most unmistakable way, their question has been answered with crystal clarity. Remember, 
the scriptures say that they watched just a day earlier, they watched him open blinded eyes and strengthen crippled legs. They saw this. They watched it. Restoring sight, restoring legs. So the authority question really has been answered, hasn't it? If Jesus is plainly doing what only God can do, then that's whose authority he works under. That's whose authority he exemplifies. They're just not willing. They just absolutely refuse to accept the clear truth before them. They will not be wrong. Now, they don't really want a defensible answer from Jesus or an explainable or evident answer from Jesus. What they're looking for is what they've always been looking for is grounds to accuse him. They're looking for Jesus to say something or say something in a certain way that they can twist or that they can use to their own advantage. If he claims to work with the authority of God, they will in some way charge him with blasphemy. How dare he call on God's own authority? If he claims any other source of authority other than God, he's certainly not working with their authority. And after all, the temple is their place, so they, they will denounce him as an intruder, as an imposter, have him removed from the temple. They don't really want to know more about this man who can open blind eyes. This gets right down into the, the nature of just how hard and dead and cold a heart can be. They don't really want to know more about this man. They want to be rid of this man. That's why they're asking. They want to be rid of him and so they can get the temple back under their control, put things back the way they want them to be. You've heard the saying of, you know, so-and-so is really set in his ways. And you know what that means, don't you? That means he is a very stubborn individual. He refuses to move. He refuses to budge. He refuses to change. He refuses to look at anything any other way besides the way that he's always looked at it. He is set in his ways. He is very stubborn. I figured I'd get some amen out of the women This just there. <laughs> There's also a spiritual stubbornness, a pride and an arrogancy, a naivety, an ignorance, an arrogance in which it has to be our way. There cannot be any other way. It must be this way. They just want to have God their way. They want to have worship their way. They want the Messiah to come their way. It cannot be any other way than their way. And that will eventually be their undoing 
and their ruin. And if we pursue our own means to God, it will be ours as well. God doesn't come to us according to our fashion. We call that idolatry. When we come across a God in our own fashion. God comes to us in his glory. God comes to us as Jesus did in the temple in his majesty and glory where blinded eyes are opened and crippled legs are walking and we don't respond by critiquing and questioning we respond by worshiping by falling down and giving him glory by worship so there's a question for accusation not information and then Here comes a question for table-turning, not conversing. Jesus is not trying to enter into a dialogue and and spark uh, some kind of chippy conversation here. He knows that these leaders are not interested in truth. He knows they're only kind of pressing their agenda trying to back him into a corner with their questions so that they can back him on out of the temple. So he responds to their question with a question, which was a common teaching method in the day. And it's a question of of his own that's meant to kind of turn the tables on these religious leaders. Kind of, we would say, kind of give them a taste of their own medicine. Let them, let them know and, and see how it feels to, to be posed a question that's kind of intended for their inconvenience. And so he, he takes them to the baptism of John. I, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John... He takes them to John. They thought they were rid of him by now. He keeps showing up in conversations. The baptism of John. Now that phrase there really refers to his entire ministry because Jesus will later say in the parable, you didn't believe him. You didn't believe his message. So the baptism of John, what was that? Well, that was a a baptism of repentance, wasn't it? John was calling people to turn from themselves, turn from the world, turn from their clinging to their own religious ideas and their religion to save them. Turn from all of that and turn to the Lord. Repent of your sin, repent of yourself, turn to the Lord and express that repentance through baptism. Come be baptized, repent, be be reconciled to the Lord. Prepare yourself for the Messiah. He's on the way. The, The kingdom of God is coming. That was John's message. And he called upon all who listened to him to repent, to turn, to let go of the things of this world, sin that had enslaved them, pride that had blinded them. He called on the leaders to repent of their spiritual hypocrisy, that they are not as right with God as as they show themselves to be or, or as they express themselves to be, that in their hearts they're just as wicked and dark as anyone else. It's just a external facade on the inside 
You need salvation. You need forgiveness. He called upon the people to turn from their ways and and turn to the Lord. He was preparing them. His ministry was preparing the people for the arrival of the Messiah. But these leaders refused John's ministry. They refused John's preaching. They refused his message. Any notion that they, they were in need of repentance... Now, before we say, remember, there's lessons here for us all. Before we say, man, can you just, can you believe those religious leaders? And yet, there's times in our own lives, isn't there, that we set up spiritual blinders, that we get consumed with spiritual stubbornness. And even though the word is very clear, and even though the conviction in our own hearts is very clear, we just continue to say, me? You think I need? To repent? You think I need to apologize? You think I need to change my ways? So they rejected John. How, what kind of message is this that they needed to draw near to the Lord while they were the very ones that were teaching the people about the Lord? They knew more about the Lord than, than anyone, especially some guy out here in the wilderness. But the crowds, that was the religious leaders, but the crowds flocked to John, didn't they? And the Bible talks about the the whole city. I mean, it looked like everyone was going down to the river to be baptized. They, They were just overwhelmed with this message that they could be forgiven, that they could break free from the chains of sin that had enslaved them, the misery, the darkness, the emptiness. That they could be cleansed, that they could be forgiven if they would just repent and turn to the Lord. Wow, they flocked. They were eager for this message. They were waiting for this message. He was baptizing people in the Jordan all the time. They embraced it. You see, they knew they were sinners. They knew that they were corrupt. They knew that they were wasting away in this world. They knew they needed something else. They knew they needed a new life. And they knew they had no way to get it. They knew they needed a Savior. They they knew they needed forgiveness. They eagerly desired to know more. Get me closer to the Messiah. Get me closer to the Lord. So they were preparing for the Lord's visit. Well, that leaves these leaders not knowing what to say, doesn't it? You read it. It's right here in the text. The Bible tells us clearly what they're thinking. I love how the Scripture does this. They they go into a private conversation, right? And the Scripture, the Holy Spirit, of course, is right there in that private conversation and dialogue, and we know exactly what they said and what they were thinking. And what they were thinking is, we're in trouble. If we say John's ministry was from God, then Jesus is going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him? Why why weren't you baptized? If we say, well, John's ministry was just from men, well, we're going to continue to, to lose even more people under our sway as we've lost so many already to this wild prophet 
So they find themselves in this place that they don't want to answer. So they say, we don't know. So they dialogue about this and they come to, well, let's just tell him we don't know. We overhear their conversation through scripture. They weren't willing to be wrong. Even if it meant, listen very carefully, church. Even if it meant you could be made right with God if you would just admit that you're wrong. That's the gospel. I'm a sinner. I'm wrong. And I need to be made right. They just wouldn't do it. So they deferred and they claimed ignorance. Well, tables turned, right? Now you know about questions that put you or intended to put you in a bind. As Christians, we often find ourselves in the same position as Jesus with these questions being posed to us. Unbelievers pose questions to us they believe will stump us and and will prove that our faith is unreasonable or ridiculous. There's no such thing as God. There's no such thing as a creator. There's no such thing as salvation through Jesus. For example, the atheist will immediately turn to the problem of evil as his ultimate victorious defeat of Christianity. Many believers are faced with the problem of evil as stated by the unbeliever, which is the very same scenario Jesus would face with these religious opponents. They would be faced with questions that they would set the context for. And then pose the question. The problem of evil, as stated by the atheist, goes something like this. There are three premises and and a conclusion. Premise one, if God is an all-loving God, then he would not want evil to exist and cause all of this suffering in the world. Premise two, if God is all-powerful, he could stop the evil and end all of this suffering in the world. Premise three, evil exists. Conclusion, therefore, there is no all-loving, all-powerful God. And at that point, the atheist kind of raises his head to signify complete dismantle of Christianity. You see there, I've, I've disproven your whole religious system, your scripture, your faith, everything. But wait a minute. The atheist believes there are no spiritual realities. The atheist is a committed naturalist. The atheist believes that every single thing in the universe is material and material only. There are no non-material realities. There are no gods, no angels, no demons, no souls. Nothing spiritual exists in the universe. It's all material. It's all molecular. It's all a combination of molecules and atoms. It's material. But wait a minute. In his very argument against Christianity, he's just admitted that evil exists. That evil 
exist. Well, evil's not made up of atoms and molecules. Evil is non-material. Evil is not molecular. If the universe is nothing more than than atoms, then how can the atheist explain the existence of non-material realities such as good and evil, love and hate? How do you have a standard to determine what is good? How do you have a standard to determine what is evil if your whole world just exists in the material? If there are no realities that exist beyond the material, if there are realities that exist beyond the material, such as love and hate and good and evil, then there must be non-material explanations and non-material standards of measurement to determine, well, that's good, well, that's evil. Beyond that, the Bible actually does offer insight into why an all-loving, all-powerful God allows suffering in the world. Tables turned. There are answers to the questions that supposedly dismantle Christianity. And Jesus has offered a question to these religious leaders to awaken them to their die-hard opposition against him and against truth. So now he takes them into a parable. He says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he's not going to give them a straight answer, but he is going to give them a parable. The two sons as an answer to the question. Jesus tells this parable, and in doing so, once again, he will challenge the spiritual lack of these leaders, but also in doing so, he answers their question with a parable. So in this parable, Jesus actually sets forward for them another question, doesn't he? And he kind of puts this question to them, going, walking through this parable. And this kind of question is a question where they kind of feel comfortable answering this one. It's simple enough. The first son at first rejects his father's command to work in the vineyard. But later he changes his mind. After he says, no, father, later he changes his mind. He repents. He turns. He changes direction. He he turns from his disobedience to obedience. He turns from dishonoring his father to honoring his father. He turns from not going and working in the vineyard to going and working in the vineyard and pursuing his father's will. That was the first son. The second son was exactly the opposite, isn't he? The second son said, oh, sure, dad. Yeah, I'll be, I'll go. I'll get right to it. The first son pledges his obedience, pledges his love, pledges his honor, pledges his desire to fulfill the will of the father pledges to go to the vineyard, but somehow he never quite gets around to it. Other things just keep coming up that he'd rather do. And so at the end of the day, it wasn't the words of the sons. No, I won't go, first one. Yes, I will go. 
wasn't the words, but rather their actions that proved which one of those sons really had a heart for the father. The first son that said, no, I'm not going to go, he couldn't live with that. So he went. The other son that said, yeah, I'll go, found out a way to not go. So Jesus says, now, which one of the two did the will of the Father? Of course, they chime in, the first. And then Jesus makes the point of the parable, doesn't he? The tax collectors and prostitutes, that is, in our day and in our discussion, Jesus talking to the religious leaders, in their minds, if they could think of the most wicked and vile people on the earth, they would say, yeah, tax collectors and prostitutes. They are as far from God as you can possibly get. We're so glad we're not like them. We're not sinners like they are. They're the worst sinners you can imagine. But you see, they're like those first sons, that first son. The first response of their life to God was to go their own way, to say no to God, to do their own thing, to reject God's command. To find their lives invaded and infiltrated and captured by sin itself. But when they heard John's message that you can be free, they repented. They changed. They turned direction to please and honor and glorify the Father. They're the first son. But the leaders, they're the second. They were the ones who saying, oh, yeah, we, we, they, they claim to follow the Heavenly Father. They claim to do His will. They claim to know His purposes. They speak. Their, their words justify themselves with their words. But they refuse John's message that, as Paul in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They refuse his message. So in spite of what they say, yes, we are ambassadors for the Lord. Yes, we know all about the Lord's will. Yes, our lives are given to the Lord. Yes, we are free from the sin around us. Yes, we follow these rules and keep our lives pure and undefiled. In spite of all that they would say, they never seem to get around to humbly submitting their lives to God. Jesus points it out once again, their desperate need. So at this point, Jesus has not only exposed their need of repentance, but he's, he's also answered both his question to them and their question to him, hasn't he? John's ministry was from God. So Jesus says, well, if you won't answer it, I'll answer it. John was sent here from God. John was sent here from God, and if John's ministry was from God, then Jesus, who followed God is the Messiah. And that answers their first question to Jesus. It's interesting here, though, that Jesus says this. In, in the last verse of the passage here, Jesus says, and even when you saw it. So see, he's not, 
Our faith, by the way, is not a blind leap of faith. Our, our faith, our Christian faith is grounded in absolute truth and reality and historical event. Jesus said, even when you saw it. Now, what's he referring to? The ministry of John. Who's he just been talking about? The tax collectors and the prostitutes who were the first son. What did they see? Lives changed. They saw the greatest evidence that Jesus is God, that John's ministry of repentance and his preparation for the Messiah, the greatest evidence that could ever be seen. They saw people repenting and lives changing. But that's not all they saw, is it? Remember just yesterday, they saw eyes being opened, crippled legs being restored. They have seen over and over the answer to their question. And so after turning over their tables in the temple, now Jesus has opened a way for them to turn over their hearts in the temple. And sadly and tragically, they just won't budge. What about us today, friends? The testimony of Scripture concerning Christ is so crystal clear. The death of Christ on the cross for our sin is so real. The resurrection of Christ in hope of life eternal is true. And right here, right now, is is our turn to turn. To let go of our way, to let go of our sin, to embrace Christ for life and salvation. Do you yet feel the weight of an emptiness of sin? Have we been like that second son that would initially speak about how right we are with God but we've never really gotten around to just laying our lives down and surrendering our everything to Christ. Don't be that second son and and merely talk. Let's be that first son who although at first and all of us at first are going our own way, but today have seen Christ in his glory And today we turn to him. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you and praise you today. There are many troubles in this life, trials in this life, circumstances in this life that are beyond us. It sounds very simplistic, and yet it is absolutely so true that fundamentally, foundationally, the answer really lies in whether we will turn to you or turn from you. Father, if there are any of us gathered today who have never truly had that initial experience of coming to faith in Christ, turning from ourselves, turning from our religion, turning from God, our own way, salvation, our own way, 
and giving our lives to Christ. May today be the day that we repent, that we turn, that we believe, that we embrace, that we find life. And if we are in Christ today, then there are numerous ways in our hearts and in our lives each and every day as we grow in the Lord that you call us to yourself, you call us to trust you, you call us to let go of the things that are hindering us and to latch on to Christ who is our life and strength and joy. So would you do that work in us today? Call us to yourself. Compel us to Christ today. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to you except through him. May we be found right there with him today. And it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.